What is the church? What should it look like? And what has it been called to do? In this series on the foundation and future of Cornerstone, we answer these questions and seek to carve out a biblical path forward for being the church in Southampton Roads. The following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Jesus, today is an important beginning for us here in uh, our time together on Sunday mornings. You have been faithful to us now for all these years. You have brought us through many, many things. We have seen your goodness. We have seen your kindness. We have seen your sovereignty, and we are so thankful to have been a part of all that you've done. And as we look to the future and we think about what you're doing and how you continue to work, we're excited and we're we're thankful that we can be a part of of what you're doing to redeem a people for yourself. And so we gather together this morning, Lord, at the beginning of this new series, asking that you will open our eyes to your work in this world. This isn't about us. This service we're having right now, it isn't about us. This church that we call Cornerstone, it's not about us. It's not ours, it's yours. And so we want to be tools. We want to be partners with you. We want to be used by you. And so all of our efforts, all of our plans, all of our, our thinking and our dreaming and our praying, it's, it all falls under your lordship. And we come today recognizing that at the very beginning because as we think about these things and talk about these things, the foundation, the future of Cornerstone, we, we want to never forget that it's not about us. It's about you. And so we ask you now to help us see that, to begin to open our eyes to what you're doing in this world and the small, small, small part we play in that, and that through this time together, you will make us better servants, better ministers, better tools to further your kingdom on this earth. We ask all these things in your name. Amen. Well, let me begin by uh, saying, oh, there it is. Okay. Oh, great. It's working now. Let me uh, begin by saying, see, we miss Jordan. What happens when he's not around? Uh, Let me begin by saying how excited I am to finally begin this series with you this morning. In case you haven't been here over the last several weeks, as I've been trying to plug this uh, a little bit and kind of making a big deal out of it, to be quite honest with you, today is part one of what will most likely be an eight-part series on the foundation and future of Cornerstone. And I hope that by the end of today's message, as we kind of introduce this series and what it's all about, that you will begin to understand why we're calling it that. If you're new to Cornerstone or even just new word, just coming in over the past few months, you couldn't have come at a better time. In terms of trying to really get a good understanding of of who we are and what we're all about and what we're doing and where this the ship is headed. I, I hope that this series will be a blessing to you in that respect. But before we get to any of that, I, I have to fulfill a promise that I made to you two weeks ago. If you weren't here two Sundays ago, I was getting ready to preach on the topic of parenting, kind of at the end of our resolution series that we were going over. And I said that I had two confessions to make to you. And I was only going to make one that particular Sunday, and I had to wait two more weeks for 
the second one. Okay, well, we've reached the second week. The, the first confession I made to you was that the resolution series that we were in at that point that we just finished up last week was never one I intended to preach. Never. I, going back to November and December, as I was thinking about what we were going to do in between Genesis and Mark, we're going to study the book of Mark together next when this is done. Um, I was thinking originally about preaching two or three sermons on the issue of parenting, but I said to you that some other things came up and kind of happened that changed my plans, and I ended up needing to, to do something a little bit more, and so my mind shifted to this concept of a resolution series, and it became much bigger than parenting. In fact, I actually only did one week on parenting at the end of it, uh, but, but the parenting series was actually the first thing I had. Resolutions were kind of a, it's kind of a tack on at the end, okay? That was, that was confession one. Here's confession two. I never intended to preach on the parenting series either. Um, The fact of the matter is is that when we were talking and thinking about what we would do between Genesis and Mark, there was ever only at the beginning one, one series that we wanted to do in between, and that was this one. But we got behind on some other things that we needed to, to work out before we could get to this. And so I, I had to delay hate saying that a sermon series is delaying, but I had to delay a little bit. So I thought, well, I'll do a a parenting series, but then we got behind a little bit more and it had to expand again. And so it became the resolution series. But here we are, finally, after all of those delays and after everything else that was going on, we're ready to jump into this. And I thought that the best way to begin our time together today is to tell you a story. It's kind of a long story, I will warn you up front, but it's a very, very important one, and I hope it's an interesting one to you, particularly for those of you who have been around here for a while, but also to those of you who are newer trying to figure out who in the world who in the world we are as a church. To, to start the story, I have to take you all the way back to Thursday, July 10th, 2008, at approximately 1 p.m., okay? I'm being specific here. It goes all the way back to then. That was the time and date that Frank and Ed and Jordan and uh, Randy Hilton, for those of you who remember the Hiltons, we, we left, and myself, we left here that Thursday morning, and we drove to Williamsburg to take our very first and su- subsequently only leadership retreat, okay? We wanted to get away for two or three days just to spend secluded, dedicated time talking about and praying about a number of things that that were pressing on our hearts and minds at that point in relation to Cornerstone. And just to put that, even that in a bit of context for you, you need to recognize that none of us knew what we were doing. We were all brand new, basically, all coming in in, in mid to late 2007. And so we had a bunch of uh, knuckleheads trying to figure out what we were going to do. But we, we got together that day to, to talk about a number of things, or over that weekend to talk about a number of things that we thought were important. And you're familiar with some of the things that came out of that retreat whether or not you realize it. For example, the reason why we incorporated the church in 2011, December 2011, we voted on that, actually began at that retreat. That was one of the decisions we made back in 2008 in July that we wanted to incorporate. We thought there was value in that. It just took us a while to get to it, obviously. But but the beginnings of that, if you go back and look at the notes, they're there. That was when we found the law firm. That was when we said we were going to do it. We just were slow in implementing. Uh, Another thing that came out of that that you're familiar with is the very room you're sitting in. It was at that meeting that we decided that because of some of the things going on with corporate landing and some of the real dangers we felt of being forced out of the school, that it would be wise for us as a church to begin looking for a place to lease in case we, we got kicked out. 
They, they were wanting us to go. They're like, hey, you've been here for 10 years. You need to, <laughs> you need to go find another home. And uh, we thought, we really thought we were going to have to leave within the year. And uh, we decided that since we couldn't purchase at that point, the only other option was to go find a place to lease. And so we came and we talk, talked to you guys about it. And if you remember that, we voted on that. We started looking for a place to lease. And from uh, late 2008 until middle, uh, early, mid to 2012, we were looking for a place to lease, and that was why we looked here. We didn't look at this place to buy it, not to begin with. We looked at it to lease, but obviously if you can buy, that's better than leasing. Once we got in, we saw we could actually afford this, and one thing led to another, and voila, you're sitting here today. But, but the fact that you're sitting in this room today actually began back in 2008 in Williamsburg at this retreat. But, but there is another item that was discussed in that retreat that I bet very, very few people in this room are familiar with, even though some of you sitting in the chairs this morning actually voted on this item. Uh, The reason I know the time that we began was because I've got the agenda and I got the notes from that meeting, and I I took a screenshot of it, and I want to put it up here. This is a, a picture of our notes, and you can see that item number two in our retreat, item one, if you're curious, was lunch. Item one was lunch. Item number two, the first thing we actually discussed was a vision for Cornerstone. And you can see that it started at one o'clock and I was the one responsible for leading that portion of our retreat. And you can see the questions that we were asking at that point, what we wanted to talk about. We wanted to say, you know, figure out what is our purpose as a church? Where, where do we see ourselves in three, five, 10, 25 years? These are important questions. They were important questions to us in 2008 as we were all brand new, none of us knowing really what we were doing or what we were supposed to be doing. And so we kind of identified this and what we wanted to come up with during this part of our our time together, as you can see on my notes, if you can read the small print, was to craft a vision statement and, we were very ambitious, a long-term plan that would guide Cornerstone into the future. And so I, I don't know for sure how long we spent on the subject, if we followed the agenda, which we did try to, to do to the best of our ability, if we followed the agenda, we spent about four hours talking to this through this, going over all kinds of things that were uh, a part of that of those questions. And after four long hours of talking and praying and looking at the scriptures and writing things on flip charts, and I think someone played Jenga. I don't know. There's a lot of stuff was going on in that time. After four long hours, we came up with a purpose statement for Cornerstone. Do you want to see it? Anybody? No? Okay, too bad. Here it is. Cornerstone Bible Church, this is what we wrote, exists to magnify the one true God by doing four things. One, proclaiming the person and work of Jesus Christ. Two, relying on the sufficiency of the scriptures. Three, unifying around the centrality of the gospel. And four, encouraging one another to godly living. And as I stand here now and look at this statement, I can say to you that it is, in my opinion, probably one of the most embarrassing purpose statements any church has ever created. Now, there's a part of me that's hoping as I say that, that you're going, why? (laughs) Why would you feel like this is an embarrassing purpose statement? Well, I'll tell you right off the bat, it's not the content, okay? From a content perspective, 
these, these things are good. I mean, we still to this day hope that Cornerstone is magnifying the one true God. We hope that Cornerstone is proclaiming the person and work of Jesus. We hope that Cornerstone is relying on the sufficiency of the scriptures that we're unifying around the centrality of the gospel. And we definitely hope that we're encouraging one another to, to godly living. The, the content is not really the problem What was embarrassing to me and is still embarrassing to me about this statement is that we came up with it in four hours. See, I'm no expert on, on purpose statements and how organizations, whether they're business organizations or religious organizations or civic or whatever, I'm no expert on how they should come up with their purpose statements or their reason for existence, but I'm pretty sure that it's not, four hours is not a sufficient amount of time to have that happen and for your statement to really mean anything to you. You see, that was the problem with this statement. While we agreed with all of the information that's being communicated by it, it didn't really mean anything to us in terms of motivating us into the future or, or giving us something to aim for, or shoot for, or for really fleshing out in a simple way why we exist, what we're here to do. We were merely expressing things we all agreed on, things that are good, but, but not things that guide us to the future or give us a real reason for pressing on. And, and as such, as I look back at this now, I, I'm embarrassed by it. But you should be embarrassed too, because some of you sitting in this room voted on this thing, okay? So I'm curious, I was thinking about this, how many of you remember this statement even vaguely? Raise your hand if you were here in 2008 and you in any way, shape, or form remember this. I got... Okay, I got like four or five hands, six, seven hands maybe. How many of you, though, would have remembered this had I not put it up on the screen behind me? Would anyone have remembered it? Yeah. See, that, that proves my point. We, we agree with these statements. This, the content itself isn't the problem. The problem here was that it didn't, it didn't motivate us. It didn't, it didn't move us in a direction. It didn't guide us to the future. And as a result, it was effectively worthless to us. And, and I would say from my perspective here, you know, we, we presented it to you. We encouraged you to vote on it. You followed us. You know, I'll take all the blame for this. We, you followed our lead. And then we made it official, official purpose statement of Cornerstone Bible Church. And then we never, ever, ever came back to this again. It didn't get added to our new members' classes. It, I don't even think it was on the website. It was, we never, ever came back to it again. And I've come to believe kind of since all this, and since we went through that endeavor, and as I've had time to think about it in the years since, that however organizations should come up with, with purpose statements like, you know, what we were trying to do, that's not something that can be done in hours. That, that's the kind of thing that has to be built in months and maybe years where things that are deep convictions begin to flesh themselves out in a way that's going to drive you to something long-term, something, something much bigger than yourself. Now, the questions we asked were good questions. The desires we had to, to come up with a statement or a, a vision that would lead us into the future, were, those were good desires to have, but just like with so many other things we've done over the past few years, we failed, Okay. But we didn't really know we failed at that point. We, we thought we had kind of checked off the box. We thought we were good. And so for about the next year, year and a half, I would say, we, we didn't come back to this. 
the questions didn't re-arise. And I'll tell you why they didn't come back up in our minds, at least from my perspective, and I won't speak for Ed or Jordan, uh, particularly Chris wasn't on the leadership team at that point, so I won't implicate him. I'll just speak for myself. Part of the reason that we didn't come back to it at that point was because we were too busy plugging holes in what at that time felt like a sinking ship. If you weren't around Cornerstone back in 2008, 2009, th- those, were some, those were some rough times in some ways. I mean, I successfully began to shrink the church upon my arrival in 2007 from whatever we started at down to a, a fairly low number. Uh, and by the time we got to December 2008, January 2009, we had reached the lowest levels. I mean, not that numbers matter, but numbers are a gauge for other things. We had reached the lowest levels that we had been at since the very first month our church ever existed. In fact, I went back this week and I looked at the numbers we kept. Okay, We we track numbers uh, every week. I went back and looked just to see how bad was it. Well, in December 2008, we averaged 73.33 people in attendance per week. Okay, now, we missed one Sunday, but I don't think it helped any, all right, because that's Christmas anyways. But, but we, we, were, we were there in January. You say, well, yeah, it's Christmas. Maybe people were just traveling, and that's why it was so bad. Oh, yeah, we were right. We got a big bump in January. In January, we averaged 76 people per week, men, women, and children all combined. I mean, now we have more than 70 kids and just back in those other rooms right now. We were at our lowest levels. The only month that had ever been lower than that was August 2001 when the church started. I think we averaged in the 40s for the, just the first three weeks. And then by September, we'd already surpassed our 2008-2009 our numbers. I mean, it was that bad. If you, if you look at the whole quarter, at, again, not that we focus on numbers, but it's an interesting gauge of where we were. If you look at the whole first quarter of 2009, we only averaged like 79 people per Sunday. We, again, we never had a quarter that low since the very first quarter our church ever existed. And only that because of, of that one month that was so low. If that hadn't been there, we would still beat it. Things were, things were kind of bleak, and I'll be really honest with you. In fact, I just admitted this to Ed for the first time three weeks ago, I think it was, when we were talking before the service. There was a time in, in late 2008 where I really began to fear that Cornerstone wouldn't survive. And, you know, I just, our family had just moved here, and, and you know, now I'm facing this personal fear, just personal. I never said anything, and just personal fears that the church was going to die under my watch. You know, that felt really, really bad. And I had nightmares. I won't go back through all that stuff again. It wasn't a fun time. But you want to know the real story of what was going on through all that? God was working. Didn't know it. Didn't understand how. Couldn't really see all the details at that point. But God was working. What he was doing, I think, just personally, is I think he was refining Cornerstone. He, he, was, he was whittling us down to our, our committed core. Again, I, I, I pause a little bit. I, there's a part of me that hates talking about numbers. Again, I find, just because my mind works this way, I find value in these things. I think they help tell stories well. It's interesting to me that, that our attendance numbers never track our giving numbers. Never. Attendance can go up like this, and giving might do this. Attendance can go down like this, and giving can go like this. Okay, It, it never tracks And what I think you learn from that is who's really committed and what's going on. Because in 2008, 2009, we're seeing numbers go do-do-do-do-do, and our giving was going up. Does that make sense? Not mathematically, 
unless you begin to understand that what God was doing was he was whittling away fringes of, of people who had come into Cornerstone over the years who really weren't committed to who we were, and they didn't really, uh, they weren't a part of our church. They came on Sundays, but that was really all they did. And yet he was bringing in a committed core that was unlike anything we had ever seen uh, prior to that that I'm aware of. And so by January, February, March, uh, spring of 2009, the tide began to turn. God began to do something with that committed core group of people, and, and we began to grow. He was doing something with us as a leadership team. He was changing us and showing us weaknesses and failures and, and things we didn't know. And believe me, we didn't know a lot. We were joking with uh, Danny this morning that the only reason people should have come to our church at that point was to see the sovereignty of God at work, because the only reason this church didn't explode was because he kept it, uh, kept it together. It definitely wasn't us. Um, God began to change things, and, and we began to grow. And that sounds all exciting, right? And we're like, yay, growth. Yeah, growth. Growth, uh, growth creates its own problems. Growth brings its own issues with it, things you weren't prepared for, things you didn't know, new things you've got to learn and figure out. And so by late 2009, guess what questions are starting to come back up? The purpose question. So, okay, so now God's bringing people to us. What are we supposed to do with them? <laughs> We're growing and we see a continuing trend in this. Where are we supposed to go? What are we supposed to be doing with them like in the next three years, in the next five years? And I don't have a, a date for when those conversations restarted. I know it was late 2009, early 2010, just us talking things through. See, I told you this was a long story. Just talking these things through. The, the first note I have on those conversations is from March of 2010. I had a notebook that I kept at my desk at that time, and I would just scribble things, ideas, stuff that come in my head. And, and I have a note from March uh, 2010 where I was beginning to rewrite, what is our purpose? Now, I even wrote down what we had come up with in 2008, but I think I scratched it off or something. I mean, like, it, we, were, we were in the middle of trying to figure this thing out. And so by June of 2010, and going back in my emails, there are emails flying back and forth and weird diagrams and, and uh, something like a house. I mean, there was all kinds of crazy pictures and stuff. You guys should pray for Ed and Jordan and Chris because you have no clue what they put up with me in terms of sending them weird stuff. And I was sending them weird stuff, and they're sending weird stuff back, and, and emails are flying everywhere. And we had a lot of good ideas and good thoughts, and the Lord was clearly working. But, but that, that statement that would bring it all together— the ideas, the concept that would make it clear and drive us into the future, that continued to elude us until, until the Lord brought it to us from a completely unexpected place. Not in terms of being from the Bible. We kind of expected that. But it wasn't when we thought or how we thought. I had just started preaching through Colossians. Remember that, those of you who were here? I had just started preaching through Colossians. I was in chapter 1. And in the course of that sermon series... We found it, and I'm not going to go over it with you today, so don't look for it right now. We, we found it. It was there. It was, it was as clear as day to us, and as soon as we saw it and we understood it, we're like, yes, that's it. This is what we're supposed to be doing. This, this brings all of those thoughts together and says it in a way far better than we ever could because it's the scriptures. You know, that's, they tend to do that. Uh, th this, is, this is what we should be doing. We've got a purpose. Yay, us except that we didn't realize something even more. Getting a purpose statement is not the end of your journey, it's the beginning. 
Because as soon as you know what it is you're supposed to be doing, new questions begin to arise. And so, for example, one of the big questions was, okay, here's what we're supposed to be doing. Um, wh- what does that mean? So take, you know, from a business, I'll use a business illustration just to keep my cards hidden for a moment. To, to use a business illustration, if I say, okay, I'm a business owner, and the, my purpose as a business is to be the best widget maker in the world. Well, what does it mean to say you want to be the best? Well, it means you're going to have to look at all the other widget makers and figure out how, how good are their widgets and how good is their process for making them and how well do they sell them and what prices, can we beat their prices? Can we make more profit? Once you start trying to define what it means to be the best widget maker in the world, you're going to have a list of, of specific things that you're going to have to focus on to make that a reality. It's your goals, your focus areas, your, your values, the things that you're going to focus on as a company. Beyond that, you're going to have to lay out a plan for how to get there. Okay, so I know what I'm supposed to be doing. I want to be the best widget maker in the world, and and it means these seven things. So how do you take those steps? Do you focus on this area first? Do you expand over here? Do you cut this? I tell you what you can't do. You can't maintain status quo. You're going to have to take steps. You're going to have to make decisions if you want to be the best widget maker in the world. And so we began to wrestle with these questions. Okay, we know our purpose. What does that mean? Biblically, what does this mean? And so we had to take time, months really, going through these things and refining. We continue to refine them to this day. What does it mean to to be the church and to be doing what God has called us to do? And then the biggie, how do you get there? What have we got to do? Where have we got to go? The status quo is not the option. We want to take risks for God. We want to make sure that we're doing what he has called us to do. And so over the last several months, we've been on that particular question. That was what slowed me down here at the end in terms of us getting to this series because we were still working through stuff, still trying to get a few more pieces in place. And because we weren't quite ready, I had to preach a little parenting series. And then, oh, wait, it's not going to be quite ready even then. Oh, we're going to make it a resolution series. And, And now here we are finally after all these months and years really of us working through these pieces, praying through these things, talking about them ad nauseum. I think we're probably sick of it and to some extent or another. We want to present it to you. We want you to understand who Cornerstone is, how we understand Cornerstone. We want you to see where Cornerstone is going, where we would hopefully, by the Lord's grace, like to take it so that we can all be together as we move forward. And and you can't separate those two components. If you, if, you want to, if you really have a sound biblical understanding of what the church is, it will force you to go somewhere. Can I, can I say that again? If you have a sound biblical understanding of what the church really is, it will force you to go somewhere. You cannot have a biblical understanding of the church and maintain status quo. You, that, that is not allowed. The scriptures do not allow it. And so if we have this foundation, we've got to go somewhere with it. And in a similar way, if we want to go somewhere, we can't go unless we all start from the same place and we're all heading in the same direction. The foundation is critical. And thus, thus the series, the foundation and future of Cornerstone. Over the next two months, month of March, month of April, we're going to take the month of March and we're just going to lay a foundation. Who are we? What are we? Why are we here? 
What are we supposed to be doing? We, we want to answer these questions and make sure that we're all on the same pages. You've heard some of this stuff before, but you've never heard it in a way that has been put together with a lot of thought to try to drive us all to the same end, okay? By the time we're done with the month of March, we hope that you have a firm, good understanding of who and what Cornerstone is. And then we're going to pause for Easter. And when we come back in April, we're going to start talking about where we want to go. Okay, so now that we know who we are, where does this lead us? Okay, you understand the, the, the system? You, you know what the plan is for the future? So my task today, and we've got, a, we've got a plan for this whole thing. We're actually organized once. We've got a plan for this thing. My task today was to introduce this series to you, help you understand why we're doing this, why we're making such a big deal about it, and then to lay the very first foundation stone, which is why I've asked you to come to Colossians chapter 1. You're there in Colossians chapter 1, and I want to lay the first stone by looking at these three verses that I've brought you to here, verses 18 to 20. In these verses, just to kind of bring you back up to speed for those of you who remember it from when we went through it before, or those of you who weren't, Paul is presenting Jesus as the sovereign Lord of redemption. He, he had taken the prior three verses, verses 15 through 17, to present Jesus as the sovereign Lord of creation. Okay, He's the one who made everything. It's all made for him. He's sovereign over creation. Now, now not only do I want you to see that he's sovereign over creation, I want you to see that he's sovereign over redemption, over the whole process by which God is calling a people to himself. And so he begins this new part by making a very simple statement about Jesus here in verse 18. He tells us that Jesus is the head of the body, the church. Okay, Jesus is the head of the church, and I hope you understand the significance of that. The head is what's in charge. Cut off the head, what happens to the body? It dies. Okay, so the head's in charge. Jesus is in charge of the church. It belongs to him. This means that Jesus is the ultimate foundation of the church, that everything we think and believe about the church, about what it is, about what it should be doing, has to first and foremost be built on the foundation of Jesus, on the person and work of Christ. That's why I say that Jesus is its ultimate foundation. We can't understand the church correctly apart from him. He's the head. We belong to him. Now, before I move on, can I just point out a couple of quick, obvious applications just from the statement that Jesus is the head of the church? Number one, since he's the head, that means that he gets to define who and what we are. I say this to you now at the outset so that you understand that whatever comes in the weeks ahead ultimately is not about choices we make. It's not just us coming up with creative ideas, things that we just want to do or ways we like to define ourselves. If Jesus really is the head of the church, then he gets to define us, not the other way around. He gets to pick what our purpose is. He gets to pick what we value. He gets to pick how we define and understand the church. If he's the head, these are his rights. Number two, since he's the head, He's in charge of this thing, not us. And I say that so that you understand that there's no pastor, no elder, no deacon, no bishop, no pope, no in, not any man of any title anywhere that is the head of any church. This is not mine and Ed and Chris and Jordan's church. Jesus is the head. He is the chief shepherd. We're merely under shepherds. We report to him. 
And we're in this together with you. So we say this because we want you to understand it's not just about a select group of people up front who are like, yeah, we should all go this way. Follow us because we're so smart. We've proven to you we're not. (laughs) That's why we want Jesus to be the head of this thing, not us. It's important that we understand that from the very outset. And so Paul tells us right off the bat, hey, look, Jesus is in charge. So if we're going to lay a foundation of understanding who and what the church is and where it should go, we have to begin with the person of Jesus Christ. He's the head. But why? Why does he get to be the head? Why does he get to be in charge? Why is he the sovereign Lord of redemption, as as Paul is trying to explain to us here? Well, the answer Paul gives us in these verses is that it's not just about who he is. It's about what he's done. It's what he's done that makes him the head of the church. And so he begins to lay that out for us. And in verse 18, you say, he said, you can see what he writes, that Jesus is the beginning. He is the firstborn from the dead so that in everything he would be preeminent. Paul wants Jesus to be up front, the preeminent thing in our minds as we think about the church. But, but we even go, okay, well, what does that mean? Well, he explains beginning in verse 19. He says, for in him... All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And I just want to break this down to a few parts. Number one, notice that this man, Jesus, is no ordinary man, right? He's God. We, we get that. In him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. It's just a picturesque way for Paul to affirm that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, is God come in the flesh. He begins with the foundational truth of the Christian faith. That Jesus is not just another guy. He's not normal in that sense. He is supernatural. He is God in flesh. If I came and told you, and I just want to make sure you you get how crazy that sounds. If I came and told you, hey, I know someone, he's God in flesh. What would you think of me? You'd probably think I was crazy and you would be right. But that's what we affirm about Jesus. That God in his mercy, grace, and love came to earth in human form and that this man, Jesus, is him. He is God in flesh. God exists and he came to this earth in the person of Christ. Second, notice why he came. We affirm that he's he's God. Notice why he came. He came, he says, to reconcile all things to himself. And, And that he came to reconcile indicates that there's a problem, right? Indicates that some things are out of sort, that all isn't well between God and his creation. We call that thing that isn't well, sin. We call that thing that isn't well, rebellion against God. Man was and is to this day in rebellion against God's rule and reign. We call that rebellion sin. Sin had separated us from God. It had made us his enemies. But God... And his great love and mercy for us came to us. And you think about this. Who, who had sinned against him? We had. Who had offended? We had. God had no obligation to, to reconcile himself to us. That obligation was ours. We were the offending party, not him. But yet, what do we see? We see that God came to us. To reconcile us to himself, he wanted that right relationship again to restore what had been broken by Adam's sin. And as a church, this is critical 
to our understanding of why we're here. Because if, if sin and reconciliation aren't real, if sin isn't real and reconciliation isn't possible, then you have no reason for being here today. And, and I mean that sincerely. There's no reason for us to gather unless we just like each other and you like hearing my wonderful uh, speaking ability. I mean, apart from that, if sin isn't real and if reconciliation isn't possible, you should leave. There's no reason to be here. But if sin is real, and if man really will be held accountable for it, and if reconciliation really is possible through what Jesus has done, then we have every reason to gather. We have every reason to be here and be the church, the body of Christ on this earth, because we have a, we have a message. We have something to share. We have a truth to communicate that Jesus has come, God has come in the flesh to reconcile us. And how did he do that? Just notice he did it he, he, by his cross. He made peace by the blood of his cross because the rebellion had to be paid for. Sin had to be punished. It had to be. And it was going to require death, either yours or his. And that's the message of the gospel, that while sin is real, reconciliation is possible through the death of Christ. His death on our behalf makes it possible for us to no longer be enemies with God. And he has left us on this earth to spread that reconciliation to others. He died to make that possible, but his death wasn't the end, right? We understand that. That's why it was the beginning Jesus was the beginning of our redemption, the firstborn from the dead, so that in everything he could be preeminent. That makes him the sovereign Lord of redemption. That's why he gets to be this. It makes him the head of the church. Do you want to know who we are as a church? Do you want to really understand what it means to be the church, for us to, to be together in this, this mission of being the body of Christ on earth? We have to begin by understanding that it is the person and work of Jesus Christ that is the foundation of our identity. We have no reason to gather if not for him, and apart from him, we have nothing. That means that this thing we call cornerstone, it's not ours. It's not our doing. This is God's doing. The story I told you just a little bit ago, that's not our story really. This is God's story of how he's working in us and through us. Our story is wrapped up in his story. It's wrapped up in his plan to redeem a people for himself through the death of his son. Our foundation has to be built on the foundation of Jesus. And guess what? Our future has to be built on that as well. So over the next several, several weeks, we're going to continue to to build on this. You know, since Jesus is the head of the church, he gets to define what the church is. You and I don't. And so next week we're going to get together and we're just going to talk about what is the church then, okay? What does it mean to say that you are part of Cornerstone? What doesn't that mean? Because we need to make sure we understand that correctly or we can't really move forward. And so I won't be here. Chris is going to handle that for us. Since Jesus is the head of the church, he gets to set its purpose. He gets to determine why we're here and what we're doing. And guess what we're going to do? On the 17th of March, we're going to look at the purpose. We believe that, that we're here as a church, what we need to be focusing on, what we think Jesus wants us to focus on. 
Since Jesus is the head, he gets to list out what we focus our energies on as we fulfill that purpose. He gets to define it for us and to flesh it out so we know what we're aiming at. And we'll look at that on March 24th. And then, as I said, we're going to pause for Easter. And we didn't plan that, but I'm really glad of how this has worked out. Because I can't think of a better way to divide the two parts of the series by remembering the person and work of Jesus at Easter. As we think about his death and we rejoice in his resurrection, the new life that we have and what he continues to build here on this earth. We'll celebrate that together. After Easter, we'll get together to consider the needs that are around us. Because if sin is real, then we need to think about what that means for us here in Southampton Roads. We need to think about what that means for our friends and our neighbors and our co-workers. We need to think about what our responsibilities are in relation to that need. The following week, we're going to talk about our vision, our plan, our strategy for meeting those needs as we partner with God in his plans to redeem a people for himself here in Hampton Roads. And then we'll end the series by just talking about what needs to change to make that happen. What things need to start, what things need to stop, what things need to get altered as we move forward. We, if we get a biblical understanding of what it is God has for us as the church, it's going to force us to move. It's going to force us to action. Anything short of that wouldn't be a, a good purpose anyway. And so that's the, that's the plan. We'll end the series with a call to action based on everything we've looked at and talked about between now and then. For now, though, for now, first Sunday, I want you to do three things. And if you have a pen, I want you to write these three things down. If you have a phone, you can type them into your phone. I don't care how you do it. I want you to take these three things out of here with you today. I'll even put them on cobblestone to make sure you understand how important they are and that you can get to them, okay? So three things you've got to do starting today. Number one, I'm going to call us to start praying. This is our series, okay? It's just we're men, we're nothing. The series itself is nothing, but the truths being communicated through it are they're part, they're critical. They're, they're huge for rightly understanding what the church is, Millions of people go their whole life and never have a right understanding of this thing. We want a right understanding. Will you start praying that God will give you a right understanding? That he'll guide us as a church into a right understanding? I want you to pray personally. I want your community groups praying about this, that God will lead us together into the future around these, around these truths that we're going to be looking at week in and week out. Just pray about everything connected to it. Just pray. I want you to start praying, number one. Number two, this is perhaps a kind of a strange one, but I, I think it would be helpful. I want you to start dreaming, not going to sleep. You've done that already right now. Wake up, okay? I want you to start dreaming. Have you ever stopped and really thought, what could the church be? What could Cornerstone be five years from now, 10 years from now? What could we do? Think about the needs around you, the possibilities around you. Too many of us are content to just walk in here week in and week out and just sit down and be a part of what's happening right now, but we never invest our hearts or minds into the future. We need to start investing. You need to start dreaming about what God could do with this little tiny nothing group of people that he's redeemed for himself and brought together at Cornerstone. We're nothing. He, he likes to take those that are nothing, though, and confound the powerful. He likes to take the foolish and confound the wise. Well, that applies to at least the leadership team. So it can apply to some of you too. What could God do? Start dreaming about it. Think about it. It's, it's a lot of fun. 
to dream and think about the future of what God could do here in our church. And then number three, just keep coming. Again, there's a part of me that fears how I say this or how this comes across, but I always want you here. (laughs) When when we get done with this series and we go into Mark, I want you here every week for Mark, okay? But I also recognize that's never going to happen. We've never once, and to my knowledge, had everybody who's connected to Cornerstone here at the same time, ever. Okay, there's always someone out, someone sick, someone traveling, someone deployed, someone gone, whatever. If there was ever a time that you would strive your hardest to be a part of something, will you make it now? That over the next two months, March and April, you are here every time. You change schedules. I don't care. Ask different times off at work, whatever you've got to do. Do your best to be here for this series because we're laying a foundation. I want you to have the foundation and I'll be, I'll work with Jordan. We'll try to put it online as quickly as possible. If you absolutely can't be here, that it'll be available so that before you come back the next week, you can listen to it. But if at all possible, we want you to be here and be a part of what's happening. I want you to see it, hear it, think about it, talk about it. I want you to get excited about it. I'm excited about it. Will you, will you make a commitment to be here for these two months as best you can for this series? That would be very, very important to us and very, we'd be very thankful if you would. If you'll do these things, then we're trusting and praying and have been now for some time that God will take all of this stuff, okay, and all the failures are going to be built into it, but he'll take all of this stuff and he will use it for his glory because he's still working at Cornerstone. He continues to do things I don't understand and continue to see fruit that's not our fruit, it's the Spirit's fruit. I'm thankful to be on the ride. (laughs) I hope you're thankful to be on the ride as well. We want to make sure we know where this ride is going, okay? You've been so attentive. Thank you for listening to my story. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Jesus, I feel so inadequate to come up here and present these things this morning. Because the fact of the matter is, is there, there's constant a constant reminder in my heart and mind that we are nothing. We are not the central piece of this story. We're going to focus on ourselves. We're going to focus on Cornerstone and what, what you've done and what, what, what's happened and where we're headed. But we do not want, our, the elders, Lord, do not want the hearts of these people walking out of here focused on us. We, we want to walk out of here focused on you. And so, Lord, will you help us to see that our story is a part of yours, that what you're doing here is just a part of your plan to redeem a people for yourself, and we get to be a part of that. The greatest plan this world will ever see, when we lie on our deathbeds, our jobs won't have mattered, our homes won't have mattered, those vacations and the toys and the stuff None of that will have mattered. All that will matter as we lay there is what we have laid up in heaven. All that will matter is what we've done for you. And we want to die in peace. We want to die satisfied that we have done everything in our ability, everything in our ability to serve you well for the time you've given us. And so, Lord, will you do a work here? As, as we go home, will you help us to be praying about these things, lifting up these questions to you in prayer and seeking your guidance. We are foolish, foolish people. We need you. Will you help us to dream and dream big and think about what you can do because the gospel's powerful. It does things that make no sense, humanly speaking. 
Will you let us see those things and be a part of them? And then, Lord, will you help us to find our utter dependence and foundation in you? At all times and all things, help us to remember that everything that's happened has been because of you, that we are here today because, as we're about to sing in a moment, you have made us your own. We are yours. So, Lord, we give you this series. We give you our time together this morning. We ask you to guide us even through this. In Jesus' name, amen.